but it was interesting having sort of heard so many people talk about it for so long and I don't know why I hadn't got into it before but we started watching last night and and then so then the conversations by the time we got to the point where it got really fraught and horrific and the, and you know and then the discovery of uh the daughter in the cellar oh god yeah um, the kids were like, oh, my God, is this based oh on Oh, God, are they watching, watching they, with the kids? Well, they sort of, they were doing something oh. upstairs and then they came down. But then we had to completely backtrack and yeah. do the whole thing. Well, this is Sarah Lancashire and this is James Norton and this is the writer. <laughs> and look, here they are with lots of pretty dresses on and makeup and, and how it's not real and, you know, and trying yeah, to it is quite, unwind the horror of it. Yeah, yeah. It is quite horrific and it deals with... But you get drawn the, in and yeah, it's so complex. Yeah, it's very good. But yeah, brilliant. Happy Valley, new Happy Valley fan of Beckenham. <laughs> so, yeah, so Nancy's discovery this week has been Happy Valley. Here we are with this week's episode of As the Actress Says to the Critic, with me, the critic, Sarah Crompton. And me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. I've had an interesting week. I've been on um, Radio 4 yeah, for a brilliant. whole 15 minutes, which was a great privilege on One to One with Luke Jones, talking about being a critic, which was interesting. It was very interesting to... You know, given that we do this podcast and so I think about criticism quite a lot, it was interesting to have 15 minutes just to listen to the sound of my own voice <laughs> and, <laughs> and talk about why I do it. He, he did. He asked lovely questions and it was great. And uh, it's on BBC Sounds app so people can listen to it. The follow up will be um, Simon um, Godwin, the director, who's director I very much like. And he's going to be talking about... Receiving criticism. Receiving yeah, criticism. Yeah, yeah. And actually First Nights, which of course is something we've talked about on the podcast. Yeah. It was really interesting. He asked really interesting questions. Yeah. And it was nice because they did mention the podcast. And, you know, it is what we do, you know, we yeah. week out trying to talk about theatre from both sides of the curtain. So what have you been up to this week, Nancy? Uh, well, I started my first week of rehearsal for Madrid Prime at the Chocolate Factory, many a Chocolate Factory which has just been fascinating. I haven't been uh, rehearsing theatre for a year and there's always that moment you think, uh, a little bit like getting back on a bike. You know, will I fall flat on my face? But it is just lovely. And I think there is something, um, I suppose it's obvious to say, but tribal when you come back together and and you you have to fast track that those relationships because you know within a month you're all going to be on stage together playing family. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful play, and and so tell me about the play a little bit because uh, I want to talk to you about rehearsals. Yeah, I think it is that is one thing that one side of the curtain you're always fascinated by knowing. But um, tell me about the play. Well, the play is really really interesting. It's written by an American playwright called Jordan Harrison, who originally wrote it. I think he said we actually zoomed him yesterday in Brooklyn, and he was a glorious man. He wrote it initially because he was to- it was. He was, it was just a point in his life where he'd read a book about artificial intelligence and about how um, it was sort of predicting that within 50 years, um, you know, like this sort of chat bot uh, algorithms that are now able to write things in the style of yes. journalistic write essays. Your, yeah, or, write your essays for yeah, you. Or, or, or form conversations or whatever. So that it's actually much closer than we think and it not so much that they would be sentient but that it was predicting you know how quickly they would be able to operate in a way that you couldn't distinguish between uh the human voice and and an artificial 
intelligence voice, a bit like the Turing test, you know, the, the, right, the Alan yeah. Turing su suggested that, you know, within however many years, you wouldn't be able to distinguish between the work of a computer and the work of a human. So he had read a book about that at the same time that his grandmother had dementia right. and that she had got to a point where she the family were having to feed her with information daily so that she could operate on a sort of semi-normal level. And that idea of feeding information into an algorithm as compared to feeding information to somebody who suddenly had extraordinary clarity about the earlier part of their life uh, rather than th something that happened five minutes ago was a sort of a comparison that then he felt compelled to write a story that included those two elements. So he set this play in 2065 and it, it features uh, four characters uh, who are all from one family, one of whom is a hologram of uh, the dead husband. Gosh. So the um, Anne Reed, brilliant Anne Reed, is playing um, Marjorie and she has dementia and there's this uh, serenity care sort of modern company that provide these holograms that you feed information to and then this hologram then is a carer. Right, right. And, and you talk to it and as you talk to it, it learns. So in in the words of the play, it becomes a better, better better human um and that and it's just fascinating and so and then one by one oh don't give too much away oh no sorry i would yeah Stop spoiler there. alert <laughs> but, but it's so it's it's a really poetic journey about memory about family um uh, about what it is that we miss about people what is possible to replicate and what it isn't possible yeah. to replicate and it's just incredibly beautiful and i originally thought is it is there a maudlin quality to this? But actually, there is there's humour because there's so much love and and it and the dysfunctions are dysfunctions that we recognise as being, you know, something sounds, that all families have. It sounds really um, prescient because there is so much about AI at the moment. I was listening this yeah. morning on the radio to a piece of music that's um, a collaboration between AI and um, a, a live improviser on stage yeah. it was quite funny because they were saying oh, it sounds brilliant it yeah. didn't actually sound that brilliant to me but there you go I'm not very musical um, but I think it is it's, it sounds really exciting to be doing at the moment and I am fascinated it's interesting you going into rehearsal because obviously I don't expect that you can re you, I don't want you to well, give the gossip of what <laughs> you're doing now because that would be wrong and it's a process but I do think one of the really interesting things for um, uh an audience yeah. is, is that there is a whole sort of different process behind the scenes that you never really get a glimpse of. I mean, yes. I've very occasionally had little glimpses of it because people have said, come in and watch a bit of a rehearsal when I'm interviewing them or yeah. perhaps when, you know, I know them quite well and they say, come and have a look. And I'm um, I'm always fascinated by the rehearsal room. I remember Michael Longhurst invited me in to look at a bit of Amadeus. Oh, amazing. And um, they just, it was the day that they, the in his production, they, they brought the musicians together with the actors. So he had live musicians on. Yes, so yes. So brought them together. And the kind of, I did feel that kind of excitement of discovery. Yes. And everybody was quite excited that day in the rehearsal. But also... 
um, Lucia Massimati was worried about where he stood and, you know, how he got through this this gang of people standing on uh, at the back of the stage who suddenly appeared because they yes, hadn't yes, yes. And I think that kind of combination of the kind of practical and the kind of discovery, the sort of the, the sense of almost the sublime, really. It must be so interesting in rehearsal. Such an interesting process. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's an inter- you- it, what I love and I think is absolutely the case pretty much every time is how extraordinarily warm and private and interesting that rehearsal room is. And I've had the experience of, I remember when we were doing Wojciech at the Old Vic, that at one point, with the actor's permission, the Old Vic sold tickets for people to come in and watch rehearsal. I'd have liked that. And it's a little bit like leaving the house before you put your bra and top on. (laughs) Because you just sort of think... Oh yeah, I think I think that'll be all right. And then when you and when these people file in and who are incredibly happy to be there and really like kids with a big box yeah. of sweets, you just think, oh my god, I just because it is this, it is a very particular process, and and you, it's odd having done it lots and lots of times, and you know, and the collective experience of a room is often extraordinary. However, you are like kids. And and uh, and it is oddly exposing to have to reveal any part of that process before you've got to a place where you feel completely right. ready. And even though it's a well-worn path, and even though it is fascinating as a creative process to the outside eye, and and obviously, you know, uh, they feel this this audience that came in felt like it was a privilege, and they said so. It was really. Quite vulnerable, mate. Yeah, and it wasn't an, a particularly enjoyable experience yeah. because you then feel that because people are coming to watch that you have to perform on some yeah. level. Yeah, it's not like they're looking through a mirrored, you know, interrogation yeah. glass wall. They're in the room going, "How marvelous!" <laughs> and it, but and so you on some level get this charge of adrenaline yeah, yeah. that physically you're not ready for. And you have to perform in a way that you don't have all the information to right. do. So it but then becomes like an anxiety dream of being pushed on stage naked, you know, and somebody's given you the wrong script. Uh, you, but that's actually what it is. Dancers have to do it because, um, so dancers have this weird thing where, um, by and large, they don't have previews. Yeah. And so the only time that they get to perform in front of the public before the opening night yes is what they call the general rehearsal which the public and friends are invited to yes yes and they they yeah they do actually say the same thing because there is a difficulty about what level you're hitting the performance at yes and you know like it will quite often be the day or the day before the first night and they don't necessarily want to go full out but also i remember once that i took um augusto um, to when he was quite young to uh, a production and um, everything went wrong and yes. so it was that terrible moment where everything went wrong and so he had been quite in love with the magic of it all and yes, of yes. he was quite small and the fairies and everything and suddenly the production ground to a halt trapdoor didn't work where yeah. dancers stomped off lots of shouting yes. it's a real and, you betrayal know, it was a real you know real moment of proper rehearsal but absolutely not what you want to see as a child in the audience but I do think so what I think is interesting about does every director that you work with are, are, are there qualities in common or is everybody completely different in how they work uh, 
There are qualities in common, and I think that table work is an interesting one because some people love it and some people absolutely hate it. People, the whole process of getting actors to stand up and do it, you know, some people are a bit like cutthroat, come on, books down, let's go. And other people are like, well, no, we'll go when we're ready and it's really slow and all the rest of it. And I think the tendency for me is to always feel that, you know, whatever I'm doing at that particular moment with that particular director is the best version. And because you sort of, you you give over to it and you trust completely. Um, Do you like it as much as you like performance? I mean, some, so again, dance, it's a dance anecdote. I don't seem to have any theatrical anecdotes. <laughs> but um, Barishnikov once said to me that he, um, he the rehearsal was what he loved. He yes. loved and loved and loved doing that. And that the stage bit was just... He liked less yes. at many levels. I mean, obviously he was brilliant on stage and that purpose, but it was the rehearsal that he utterly adored. Well, it's an interesting thing about comfort zones. And, and I think that sometimes directors don't mind a comfort zone and others feel that they're really, they're just a delaying tactic. <laughs> and that ultimately you've just got to push actors to get uncomfortable because in those moments, you know, for whatever reason, a bit like when you're tired, you find, you make discoveries Right. And you are, I remember doing a series years ago with uh, Shekhar Kapoor, the Indian director, and his whole ethos, I don't know if I mentioned this before, I, I, he did a TED talk about the nature of creativity right. and that he uh, decided quite early on that, that um, chaos on some level forces you to connect with the universe and with the people around you. And so that now he, you know, on by design creates chaos on his sets in order to force (laughs) the actors to connect with each other, connect with the work and get outside of their heads. Gosh. Which I think is really, really interesting. But having been slightly at the mercy of it without the guidebook initially, I was terrified. But then people, you know, you could argue, okay, I'm feeling terror, but for a director, they're forcing me to create. And and that ultimately it is a... A useful tool. It's interesting because generationally actors want certain things uh, and you can have, you know, a 20-year-old and an 80-year-old in a room and and they'll have sometimes surprisingly similar needs and sometimes in In what kind of ways? What kind of different ways? Uh, You know, um, I've worked with some older actors who are very stuck in their ways and then others who, you know, bounce around like they're in their 30s and mm. and I suspect people are who they are you know whatever their age yeah. you know and I think it's easy for us to say oh it's generational or it's you know whatever but there is a particular spirit of a performer which is childlike and um depending on experiences and and processes the 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 pace of which you open up and trust often affects the temperature of a room. So one thing that I think is appealing from outside is yeah. that is that sense of freedom, that idea that you've got a space to play. I remember when I was at university and all my friends were sort of doing theatricals, I want to say. I mean, some of them went, <laughs> went, some of them went properly into theatre and, yeah. um, uh, you know, have had incredibly successful careers. A lot of them just stopped. The appeal always seemed to me to be that that kind of... Um, the, the sense of freedom in a space that you could just um, 
discover things about yeah. yourself and about other people. But also the other thing that always fascinated me about theatre, and what I actually think a bit from my end as well, is I love theatre because it always seems to me that you, you're learning stuff while you're watching it and that in the rehearsal process, I've always wondered if there's a bit more of that. That you know, like I, I've known people who've gone into rehearsals for a play and suddenly become an expert on nuclear physics, nuclear physics, because yeah. they had to read around Copenhagen, for example. That you suddenly, that you, it's like there's so little in life that is a constant process of learning things. Yes, yes, and. Um, uh, you know, journalism is one. You you become an instant expert on X because you're going to write about it. Yeah. But theatre and acting has always seemed to me another because you've got that chance to dig into people's lives, people's backgrounds, the subjects that you're doing. I yes. mean, you know, I mean, is that, is that a true perception? Do you feel that the, a lot of your knowledge has come from those kind of... Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's all operating on lots and lots of different levels and we're all juggling. So we're all juggling stuff that in the play and whether or not it's, you know, stuff that we know about, if it's an emotional journey, is it triggering stuff? We're um, reeling from our previous experience, whether it was six months ago or six years ago. You know, there will always be a moment at which if somebody had a bad experience with a director 16 years ago, there will be a moment where they go, I'm sorry, I'm reacting this way because the last time somebody said that right. to me. And so it, that all that comes in and so it becomes like a sort of, giant petri dish right and uh, and it's us reacting to each other reacting to the play reacting to the building reacting to politics of what's going on and as you know levels of trust improve you get more family drama and real life stuff that's brought into the right. room and we collectively respond to that uh, you know if yeah. somebody's got a grandchild waiting to be born or somebody's got a partner who's not very well or somebody's got bank issues or whatever. It's really, really interesting, the whole journey of trust, because actually that's what it is. Yeah. Because what we do on stage is we all lean on each other like a giant trust exercise. And, you know, you can still put on a play if that isn't entirely in place, and it could it could be a really, really good play. But the, the true experience where I think my understanding both as an audience member, as a theatre lover and as a practitioner, is when, when you experience an event on stage, a live event that an audience are just lost in yeah. and the company are lost in, it's because that level of trust is at a maximum. Yeah. They've trusted the words, they've trusted the director, they've trusted that journey and then the audience sit down into that space and they trust that they can lose that themselves in this story and that's safe and 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 it's like this collective yes yeah and I think when that doesn't work and people start to fall apart or somebody has an affair or somebody's fallen out over something which happens of yeah. course it happens you know we were, we were talking about it yesterday in rehearsals about the the whole Russian model yeah yeah and and how Russian theatre companies we were talking about Cherry Orchard and and you know, they can be together for decades yeah. and there will be a point of which, you know, that they, they start off and they, they build this company on the, on the fact that they all agree on this model. 
and they all have a shared ethos and a shared passion and then and they grow up together and they get married and they have kids and then they all start having affairs with each other and you know they fall apart and they come back and they swap parts and they get older and 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 it's like this weird parallel universe life journey that yeah. they go on but that level of trust yeah means that what you what you witness on stage is magic and well, it's it, mad. It, yeah. yeah, and it's well, it, it is also that create which we were talking about last week with um, Luke Hulgard yes, yes. about circus. It's the creation of a troupe that works together. And yeah, I think yeah. the Russians actually regard themselves um, as a troupe, and of course they do have that tradition in their circus as yeah. well of having you know families coming together. And I do, I do think you see it with companies that work together over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. So um, I remember seeing the the the, the Marley company do Three Sisters, yes. and it was in Russian. And I've got a weird feeling that it was done without subtitles. I don't know why I feel that. Maybe, or maybe it was a, a stage of theatre going where the subtitles weren't as sophisticated as they right, are. Right, right. Certainly I didn't feel I understood what was going on on stage, but I did understand it because their relationships to each other, their instinctive understanding of where the other one would be standing and that kind of sense of reaction between them yes, was yes. absolutely profound and amazing. And then the other like thing, like an orchestra, though. yeah, like an orchestra, but also like people. It is. It was like seeing a family that had just, you know, started to perform. I, I am fascinated by those long-running yes. groups. There's also Teatro du Soleil, which is um, quite heavily political. But again, I think that they they work together all the time. They improvise the work together. They create yeah. the work together. And then when you see it, it's it's a kind of funny feeling watching it because as the audience you feel that you've just stepped into another life. It's not like you're watching a play. Yes. It is like another life that's unfolding in yeah. front of you. And I think you get that a bit with um, Eva van Ho's work with his um, uh, Amsterdam-based company, yeah. uh, Tunnel Group, because you can see that all the actors yeah. have worked together a lot. Yeah. So it is interesting for you that, kind of, that creation of a family. Yeah. And and that's the other thing you always notice about actors. That if you go out with an actor or you see actors, they always know people because yes. they work with those people, and yes. and you've known them so intimately yeah. for that burst of time. And yeah. then you don't necessarily see them again. I no, would, that's quite an, and that's an a, odd thing. as a young actor, that was quite a thing to get your head around the idea that you form these relationships with people and have extraordinary, as you say, intimacy and you know, experiences, because when you're doing that play, it, it is it is your life, you know, yeah. your entire clock is around, you know, the, when you will perform next. And, and and so it was quite hard to then think, oh, are we not in each other's yes, lives then yes. forever? But you've, you rediscover them further down the line and completely carry on from where you left off. Yeah. And it's sort of glorious in that way that age is defied by the creation or creativity because it's just you you... It could be 20 years. I mean, I'm working with uh, Tony Giardina at the moment, who I've been in with two companies. Um, and 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 I and I guess, I mean, for Dominic Drongul, who's directing us, the fact that we're playing husband and wife and we have had those experiences together, there's something we get for nothing, or he gets it, for yeah. nothing, that we get for nothing. You know, that, that we already know that we know and love each other and we've been on stage together and that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, similarly with Complicite and Knee High, and it's that ease. It's an ease of storytelling. It's a shared collective 
joy and and uh, I suppose intelligence really intelligence about what the of intention yeah you know what you want to do with that play what you want to do with that story and it's just and the, the relaxation that, that that you get from watching a company so completely honed and it, it, you know yeah, and it and is you, like music and it, I just love it it's lovely yeah and you do feel you relax in the audience I, I think that is the really interesting thing when you see it working and it often works I mean it often works with companies that have just been put together for yeah. a show so it's not only with the Russians or, 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 or long standing companies yes but it does just um, induce in you the audience that sense of uh, you you said trust and it is true you get that sense of trust but you get that that movement towards something that is just it is intimate it is that shared space yes. and i think that is one of the sort of magical things when theatre is working and it's a tension thing as well like when we did closer patrick marber said to us don't fall out right <laughs> don't nobody sleep with each other nobody fall out nobody argue because then the play doesn't work yeah. you have to love each other yeah um and i remember years ago working with mike attenborough one of my first jobs at the rse and he'd recently done romeo and juliet i think with zoe Waits and ray Fearon, and he said to them please 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 don't have an affair yeah. <laughs> because he, and quite openly yeah. and, you know and he'd laugh about it but it's absolutely true that that balance of trust and tension is so finite and essential to that that experience, yeah. the experience of the audience and the experience of the storytelling. Well, I've just had a, a delirious night in the theatre seeing my Crafrain's Noises Off, which oh, has amazing. come back yeah, and, yeah. Um, in a very good production um, from the Theatre Royal Bath. And um, is, I, I mean, it's absolutely blissful. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's one of the very few plays that I have seen multiple times. And in each occasion, um, I... I cry, I laugh so much that I'm crying and can't see the oh, stage really? anymore. Oh, I mean, it's a bit. And of course, the glory of Noises Off is that it's second act. Yeah. Um, its first act depicts a rehearsal, which yes, is very yes. funny. Where you know, um, the Felicity Kendall character is playing Dottie, this kind of retired soap star who's funding the tour, has got uh, has a wonderful line for the director where she goes, "Did I get any of the lines right?" And he, he <laughs> says from the stalls, he says, "Well, I recognised a few of them." It's <laughs> you know, kind of wonderful, kind of collapse. But the second act, yeah, I think, yeah. is one of the funniest things ever written in theatre. It's yes. almost silent and. And it's backstage of a farce where the company have done exactly what, um, you know, you've been told not to do. They, they, they've they all had affairs. Yes. And so there's all kinds of real emotion yes. causing absolute chaos in a silent mime as they continue to play. Yeah. Um, a farce where everything's running out of control on the stage. And yes, so you've got yes. this brilliant sense of chaos, both sides of the stage. And... I mean, it is the most brilliant bit of writing. And of course, as actors, to be really skillful to play the farce. Yes. In order to be bad actors playing a farce. And so yes, this yes, lovely yes. sort of Chinese box effect. And it's brilliant. Josie Milson falls down the stairs. And I know this is a childish thing to say. He falls down the stairs and I just, it was so brilliantly done. I just laughed and laughed and laughed. And then it was so realistically done that I also worried he'd hurt himself. Yeah. You know, it's kind of magic. And it is magic because it takes all those things about um, actors that we think we know, like one character always asking what is motivation for carrying a box from one room to the other. Yes, yes. Um, and, and makes them into a comedy about theatre, yeah. really. 
Uh, on on that though, on, do you when you go into um, a rehearsal, do you always know your lines? Do you go because some people go in knowing everything, don't they? Do you do watch what's your? Uh, it's a hard one, really, because um, I do try, but I'm so fundamentally rubbish that I think, am I self sabotaging or am I? I I think that. I really, really want to, and I would love to be one of those people who have brilliant photographic brains, but I'm not at all. I'm dyslexic and I have to write them all out. And um, I also think that if you learn them in isolation, you're sort of taking them through the wrong porthole, right? really. And actually, there's so much that is about how you respond to the person and how they say their line that you can't possibly know till you start um, and what you're doing in the space and, and your understanding of the emotions around the line and what's actually going on that you don't discover until you're in the room, that when you learn them at that stage, it's sort of like, you know, driving a car. Yeah. You know, when you first get into a car, you think, how am I ever going to drive this thing and contend with the road and pass my theory and everything else? If you had learnt about the entire inside of the engine of a car and how to actually drive the car according to a book, would it actually help you with the madness of traffic yeah. and actually driving it down the road? In theory, you'd know it, but the actual practice, is on the... one could argue, you yeah. actually have to just do the thing. Yeah. However, I can, I can totally understand why actors want to and that's the ideal and why directors love it when actors do because you sort of get an extra week. Yeah. Sometimes two weeks, yeah. sometimes three. But, you know, because there is that struggle and people are learning at different there, paces. Yeah there, are, yeah, there are so many different things around lines, isn't there? There's Simon Russell told this brilliant story. The Lehman Brothers is coming back on in the West End and I think we're both going to go and see it. And yeah. he, um, Simon Russell was in the first cast when it was being created and Ben Power literally had sort of bits of script all around his room and um, in colour-coded passages trying yeah. to work out what he was going to use. Simon Russell is someone who really likes to know the lines beforehand. Right. So he had learned the script and he said that he just, his dismay when he discovered that kind of huge chunks of it had just vanished and other bits of it had completely oh, made no. no difference. It was very intense. Um, so there are, there's pluses and minuses for both approaches. But it's really interesting. I mean, what we've been doing this week and I sort of think it's genius really. And um, But it, Different different actors, directors have different methods for for totally legitimate and gorgeous reasons, and and they have come to them for their own through their own journey. I remember years ago doing the the Voice Inheritance with Peter Gill, and Peter Gill openly gives line readings, right? And he just says this is after years of knowing that the way I hear it in my head is the right way. <laughs> Love so that. I'm just bypassing all of the niceties and telling you how to say it. But then they, what you, what people struggle with, and we talked about openly in the room, is that you then remove the actor's instinct yeah. and their journey, which is their muscularity and their journey of getting fit enough to do the job, is removed because somebody said, no, 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 you just... Just get to the finish line at four minutes and 51 yeah. seconds and you'll be fine. You go, no, but I have to get up to speed to know that I can pass the finish line at four minutes and 51 seconds. You, you telling me that that's when I need to hit it doesn't help me get 
run fast, yeah. you know. And so, but it, so that journey is interesting. But then I, it's what I go back to with comfort zones. I think I can see why it's important. When we did betrayal during COVID, there was a government requirement to not have scripts in the room because it was another oh, surface really? on which COVID germs could sit. Gosh. So we had to be off book. Right. Gosh, that's it was, really interesting. But, I mean, in the end, there were scripts, yeah. of course. And, of course, and, now we know it was... And it was, uh, you know, paper. and that was with Joe Milson and Edward Bennett with Jonathan Church directing. And, and we all, we had the sort of two-metre rehearsal things on the floor so we couldn't get too close to each other and all the rest of it. But it was an interesting thing because Pinter is so very, very specific that we had to learn pauses and silences as well as words. Cool. And that was just... I remember hearing you talk and uh, it's, it's reminding me of one of my favourite recent films about acting, which is Drive My Car. Right. Um, which is set in Japan and I can't remember the name of the director, but it features that the plot is there is a director who has been bereaved, who is rehearsing Uncle Vanya. Yeah. And... Um, he has this thing. I, I, it's an absolutely brilliant, rich and resonant film, which kind of um, stays with you. It's very long, but it, yes, it is absolutely yes. wonderful. But the, the bit that's relevant here is his technique is to make keep the actors on book at a table until everybody says the lines in a way that makes him happy. So they yeah. have to read it over and over and over again and, and kind of frustrations build and you never see what happens in the end because that's not the point of the film yeah but it is brilliant and it is one of those little kind of moments of insight into into what you do and it, it does me I think it is fascinating I know the impulse to have open rehearsals because the process is interesting but in the end I suppose what we're all um, working towards and hoping for is the product so I'm, I'm very much going to look forward to coming to hear well it is uh, interesting see but there's all those different methods I find absolutely fascinating and uh, you know, the, the, we could go on for hours, and I won't. I won't. But it. But you know, there. I remember there was one company that did Theatre of Blood at the National that I went up for years ago, and they described this instant acting, and it and these techniques and the games and the zip zap boings and trust exercises that yeah. you do are. You can see why directors employ them, even though, you know, old farts like me might think, oh Christ, you know. But but there is a. There's a there's an absolute point to them because you're forcing people to try stuff. You're forcing people yeah. to invest in each other and language and discomfort, comfort from discomfort, trust from not knowing, and all these things are sort of on some level fast tracking, but they're also forcing you to connect with each other through the creativity. But the instant acting thing was interesting because you'd record the lines and then mime to the recording. Ooh. And then re-record the lines and then mime to that recording. And he did it about five times and then eventually you would just do the scene and you wouldn't have to be specific to the language, but of course you'd recorded it five times, so quite a lot was already in your head. But it is about, but so that, you know, and they didn't particularly like blocking, but it was about reacting to the work in a way that was sort of coming at it laterally and and. It's that really, it's that process of coming, you know, f forming a group, casting that group, giving them the means to connect and then connect in a way that can take that story and connect with an audience. And there are so many different ways and means and they're all fascinating and all valid. And 
it's a it is a beautiful process, but it is a process. Yeah. Um, and you have to give into it, and you can't create anything in the first week that comes out of the fourth, and you just and so that's. So how many more weeks have you got left to go? Uh, another three. Right. I think we should wrap this one up for this week. So it's uh, goodbye from me, the actress Nancy Carroll, and goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic. <laughs>